Hey y'all, you're listening to episode 165 of the God Center Mom podcast with me, Heather McFadden. And today I'm chatting with mom and special education teacher, Sarah Fulrich, about a topic many of you have been asking to hear about, ADHD. Here's a little clip of Sarah talking about ways to help kids with inattentive ADHD. Here's what you need to think about with inattentive ADHD. You want to automatize stuff as much as you can because that frees up brain space. So the more routine they have of putting your keys or putting your school ID in the same spot every day, always having your planner um, in the same spot every day, open to the page so you're not having, you know, lessen the steps and automatize things so that it's, it's automated and we're not taking up brain space so that, that those mental resources can be applied to the new things and the novel things. Whether you have a child with ADHD or not, I think you're going to learn a lot from Sarah in this episode. She is one wise lady, and she should be after 20 years helping families navigate the tricky waters of special education. She's also the mom to three girls, two of whom have been diagnosed with ADHD, and they're now teenagers, so Sarah understands how this disorder can impact your home life. She's coming on today to answer your questions you posted on Facebook, questions about diagnosis and medication, questions about helping give some practical coping strategies in the classroom and at home, and just sorting out the different labels that can be a bit confusing to those of us who are not in the medical or educational field. It's all good things, but just like every single topic on this podcast, we can't get to everything in the hour that we have, but it's still great stuff and I can't wait to get to it, so let's here we go. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the God Center Mom podcast. It's so fun to have you on today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I sent out a call on Facebook. There were several listeners who were like, can we please have an episode on ADHD? Which I've had a few, but I think they just, if you're in that position, you're, you're desperate for help. So I appreciate you taking the time to share with listeners today what you know about ADHD and how we can help the mom listening to uh, work through some questions she may have. I even got questions from Facebook. So before we get into all that, I'd love it if you would just introduce yourself to the gal listening, tell her a little bit about your family. Sure. Um, my name is Sarah Furlich, and I my background and training is as a special education teacher. And so I came into the learning disability community partly because I chose that field because we have learning disabilities in my own family. And um I had an interest there, and I have a niece with um, cerebral palsy, and um, so we we live it on multiple levels. Um, We have dyslexics and ADHD family members as well, and so um, I was passionate about it from the beginning, and then now, of course, I'm the mom of three girls, all very different, and two of whom have been officially diagnosed with um, dyslexia and ADHD, and another who maybe doesn't officially have that diagnosis, but we certainly work on executive functions and attention and routines and managing just the demands of life and stress that often um, eight people with ADHD struggle with. So um, I feel like we live it all the time, and um, my girls probably get tired of hearing about it, but um, it's fun to be able to offer tips and things that have helped in our family and then things I've gleaned from other people who have walked in my shoes. And tell us real quick, how old are your girls? Just so. Yes. So I have a sophomore who is about to be, who just turned 17. And then I have a freshman who turns 15 at the end of this month. And I have an eight year old who'll be nine in June. Okay. So you have walked this path and made it slightly to the other side and you're almost there. Which yes, is always helpful. Feel, you have perspective. Yes, we, this gradual emancipation, we are in the full swing of it. And sometimes I think we are really doing a great job and it's going to go so well. And then other times I think, oh, I'm not near ready. <laughs> but you've had, you know, well, there's young moms out there and they haven't reached the point where they're questioning, does my child have dyslexia, ADHD, or kind of in the, how do I keep everyone in a clean diaper and fed and will they sleep when I want them to sleep? That's the phase they might be in. (laughs) And just when you're getting out of that and you're like, oh, finally they're in school, issues start popping up and then a different stress shows up and it's, you know, well, this teacher suggested perhaps I need to see someone. Um, They might have ADHD. And for the mama who's in that place, she might have had this question, uh, can other conditions be mistaken for ADHD? 
can an undiagnosed, untreated sleep apnea mimic ADHD? So for that mom who's in that place of, do I need to see someone? Could this be something else? What advice would you give her? Sure. It's very frustrating for parents because we want to be able to attack this problem in a very linear fashion Mm. and get to the bottom of it. And it just unfortunately doesn't work that way. And part of it is, you know, as you educate yourself and become more aware and more educated about ADHD and other learning disabilities, you can begin to look back and see things and you're like, oh, if I'd only understood what that was at the time. And, you know, unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. And I, the best word picture that I give parents to, de- to describe the process, it's peeling an onion. And you just really have to look at the layer that's in front of you and kind of peel it back. And it may be the bottom layer, but there also could be some more layers underneath. And we also are dealing with a human being that's growing and developing and their brain is changing. And, you know, that prefrontal cortex really isn't even fully developed until you're 16. So it's a long, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. But you can feel if you get the right team of people around you and you get a plan in place, you can at least feel like you're making some headway. So for a mom who is wondering, what is this? Isn't this just normal? I mean, when you talk about impulsivity, you're going, well, aren't all five-year-old five-year-olds somewhat impulsive? Yes, they are. And so it's a degree. It's to what degree? And if this is your firstborn, you don't have anything to compare it to, right? Um, and so sometimes it's not until that parent has that second child and they see that second child kind of outpacing where the first child was, and they're like, "Wait a minute! If my second child, who's two years younger, is remembering to put their shoes away and where their backpack is, and can seem to get their workbook finished without popping up from their seat five times, you know, something's out of balance here." So, beginning to talk and, and look towards resources like yourself, like you and your podcast, is a great place. And find a village of moms who've walked your road, because you know, unfortunately, sometimes that mom group, that play group, or that mops group, you know, there may be other moms in there that are walking your road, but there also may not be. You know, they may all have very neurotypical kids, and you may not find the safe place, and it may feel like I'm just a bad parent, and this is not bad parenting. So let's go specifically to the things like sleep apnea. So yes, a lack of sleep, studies more and more come out that when we don't sleep well, our brain does not work efficiently. But those are things that once addressed, those symptoms should come down. There are also metabolic issues that can uh, mimic ADHD. There's more and more research coming out about autoimmune diseases that can, um, during certain flares, can create um, ADHD symptoms. But what we have to remember about ADHD is it's a clinical diagnosis, meaning that it's a checklist of symptoms. And that makes parents uncomfortable because there's not a blood test. There's not a chromosome test for it yet. There, Yes, we scan people's brains and we know that there's a lack of, you know, engagement in that, pre, that frontal cortex, um, frontal lobe, but we don't do that diagnostically because that's invasive. And so even though we have some science and research to back up that there is something wired differently in their brain, we can't diagnose that way. And so it can be unsettling to parents because they're like, I don't even know if I filled out the survey correctly. But that's why when you get begin to get preschool teachers and early childhood teachers and those first grade teachers and they've been provided with some instruction and it's just not sinking in um, or you've tried to have an organized routine at home and it's just not working, that's when you can be confident that, you know, this is something different. So um, also anxiety, you know, so with my own daughter, for example, when we first got her diagnosed, her anxiety scores were off the roof. And the minute I saw those, I was like, oh, they're going to want to put her on anti-anxiety med. But a good evaluator will help you tease out, is the anxiety driving the inattention or is inattention and learning problems driving up the anxiety? Because our kids are perceptive. They know, they know when they're not getting it as fast as another student or when they're just half a step off. And my daughter was one of those girls that we'll talk about later in the questions that your listeners sent in. She looked like she was paying attention all day long. And that kindergarten teacher thought she was on task. She was a million miles away. 
and she's the, she figures out the routines and she offers to pass out papers or offers to clean the, the whiteboard or to do the little things that she's that are predictable to make it look like she's really on track with instructions. But anything that was new, she was not tuned into. What I'm thinking of from an outsider, a non-teacher who's interacting with kids and their blanket you know, evaluation is behavior. How is the child acting? If they're bouncing off the walls and they're not doing what I say, they must have ADHD. Um, And I I think that this is good for them to hear you say, no, no, no. My daughter was very well behaved and actually helpful Mm -hmm. in the classroom, Mm -hmm. but she was not attending to the instructions is a very helpful thing for that teacher. Um, I've had I've had many of my boys, um, teachers mention ADHD as a possibility for different ones, Mm -hmm. different teachers, different ages of my boys. And so far, none of them have been diagnosed, but I've always had it in the back of my mind. And you need Mm -hmm. to correct me if I'm wrong. Part of me was saying, you know what, we'll do something when the grades don't match their ability, like when their performance isn't matching their ability. So I so far haven't seen any of them have intelligence than, that is lower than average. I think that that is a great question. Okay. Um, did, I, did I interrupt you? No, 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 no. But that I'm, I was yeah. just going to expound exactly that. Like that yeah. if their intelligence so, is one thing and then their performance starts slipping, like they aren't doing as well right. in spelling or math. So when we so when we have a gap between our ability and our achievement, certainly, but measuring that achievement without a formal achievement battery, it can be twi- tricky sometimes. So I tell parents that I want them to look at a couple of different areas, not just what are their grades, because grades, to be quite frankly, frank, are pretty subjective, right? And you have some teachers who are super punitive in the way they grade, and then you have other teachers who are very generous and they really give kids the chance to read. It's more about mastery than it is about the grade. And I love that. Like I, I care more about you learning from your mistakes than I do what that initial grade might be. Um, and so we don't always, we're not necessarily always capturing that information correct. And some of those teachers are so great at making that student feel successful, even though what it took to get to that success might not be fully um, taken into account in a number, right? Right. So I think you have to look at more than just academic success. You have to look at where is their social and emotional well-being. Mm. If they are, because like my own daughter, once we got her the tools and the help, she will work her little tail off. But where she's spending three times the amount of time as another student in her class to get her work done, that stress and anxiety starts to build. And so we have to, at what cost to the student is that achievement coming? And if our stress and anxiety is too high, that is another way they're trying to mitigate those ADHD symptoms. And then, then then the friend piece, because so many, you know, my daughter was not the kind of daughter child that didn't have friends as an ADHD student. But there are other ADHD students that just don't read those nonverbals because their impulsivity, and that's something where we can talk about in another question, is the behavior piece is driven by impulsivity and not attending to the cause and effect reactions that happen. That when I said that, you didn't like it. And you walked away from me and I didn't, I don't understand what I said that made that happen because my brain is just not staying tuned in enough Mm -hmm. for me to connect all the dots. And so the social and emotional, and then the emotional regulation is another critical piece of the ADHD. My youngest child does not have focus issues in terms of just completion issues sometimes, but she really, when it comes to um, focus and attention. It's more of the emotional regulation yeah. that she goes from zero to 10 pretty quickly. And that's another piece that you just have to manage. So what I tell parents who maybe think in the back of their mind, we have a family history of ADHD or other teachers have mentioned it, but it's not time to diagnose yet. If you're looking at those kind of key four areas and say, are our symptoms well-managed? If they're well-managed, then you don't necessarily need any other additional therapies like pharmaceutical therapies. But our kids are at greater risk for drug and alcohol and substance abuse and emotional problems like depression if those symptoms are not well-managed throughout their life. So a lot of parents are worried about the medications leading to that road. Actually, research shows that our students are more at risk for substance abuse problems and, and social and emotional and mental health issues if they don't receive pharmaceutical therapies or something that equally regulates their symptoms. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. 
And so again, going back to that apnea question and the metabolic question. So if there is concern and you're seeing those symptoms aren't well managed or you're having issues or a teacher's brought it up, what first step should a parent take? Is it talking to the pediatrician uh, to sort out the apnea and the metabolic or? Right. So I think you definitely want to rule out, you know, if there's something simple, you know, like a, and not necessarily that it's a simple, but it's just a little bit more black or white. So certainly going to your pediatrician first. Some pediatricians are more willing to engage about an ADHD um, diagnosis than others. And part of this just comes from, I, th- I think it's two factors. Again, I'm not a physician, I'm not in the medical community. And so this is not medical advice, but just from what I've gleaned from families is in physicians is that the way our managed healthcare system works, it just doesn't provide the amount of time. Some pediatricians feel like they need to engage a family to make sure that this is the right, right course. So they'll prefer that a family go through a psychiatrist initially. And so sometimes that psychiatrist or that psychologist, so the psychologist would typically be the person that gives the diagnosis or a pediatrician can, will sometimes feel comfortable letting you do a rating scale and then them giving a diagnosis because it is a medical diagnosis. So the psychologist will do inventory and then they'll give you those results and say, take these to your pediatrician or take these to the psychiatrist. Some pediatricians want you to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist will make the medical diagnosis and will initially give the medications. Then once they get a good baseline of medicating, because some kids are easy to medicate. My oldest is on medication. She could probably take any of the stimulants and be fine. And so her pediatrician's more than capable of managing those meds. Other kids are more complicated and they need that the finesse that a psychiatrist can give. Um, and, and that's what you go to psychiatrists for. And it's just, unfortunately, most, a lot of the really good psychiatrists aren't covered by insurance and it's just pricier to do it that way. So if you can go through your pediatrician, that is great. But if the medications really aren't getting dialed in correct, in properly, then definitely a psychiatrist can usually dial that in better. The other thing that's important for people to recognize is schools do not diagnose ADHD. They will do some of those same screeners and they will make a recommendation that you go and visit with a physician, right? So they will just give sometimes a rule rule out ADHD. That's the same thing with a, um, a clinical psychologist in private practice or a diagnostician in private practice. They will give some of those same inventories and they will say in their diagnosis, they will say rule out an ADHD diagnosis. Hmm. So all good information. One mom asked... If a child will outgrow ADHD, is this something that can be misdiagnosed or what are the chances of a child outgrowing it? So you you don't outgrow it, but your symptoms may become manageable enough that you no longer need either medication or other interventions. So the according to the DSM, um, and it's been a long time since I've looked at it, but I'm assuming nothing has changed, it, that these symptoms are supposed to present before seven years of age. Okay. That doesn't mean you always get your diagnosis before you're seven. But as you look back, you can say, yeah, she never really could finish a task or that room was just no matter how much we worked on it, we just couldn't keep it straight. Or yes, we had lots of missed assignments. You know, you can kind of look back in retrospect and see those behaviors. Um, The outgrowing piece, what often happens is depending on your profile. So for example, my daughter's ADHD profile is that she has a very significant working memory deficit. Well, you never need your working memory quite as much as you do when you're in school. Your working memory is that ability to hold things in your short-term memory and manipulate that information to solve a problem or complete a task. So once we get out of school, we're not learning a lot of information at once and we have routines that become automatized. So it could be that somebody like that, once they're out of school, they no longer need the medications Mm -hmm. because the job that they're in becomes routine enough that they can function without them. But there are other um, people that they need that medication their whole life. And that can ebb and flow. I know that, you know, I've known women and men that have gone off their medications once they get into their professional career. And then once they either get a new job or they have multiple kids, right? Because every time you add a kid, your margins change a little bit more. And that need to manage multiple things becomes overbearing and overwhelming. And so medication needs to come back into the table. So the goal would be, that an individual would know how that medication functions for them, 
and be able to recognize the demands within their own life and plan ahead. And so it may be that if you're an attorney, you only need it when you're about to go to to court because you've got the, you know, a ton more prep that you have to do. Or if you're um, in a job where you have certain types of projects and your due date's coming and you know you've really got to be on it and you can't have that time management issue that you might have when you're off of your medication. I think the other important thing to understand about the way medications work is they don't do the work for you. They just open the door. And that was an important conversation for my daughter is what she would say, you know, well, I can do that now because I took my medicine as if the medicine made her learn. I'm like, no, 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 no. You learned how to spell. You learned how to do grammar. You did the work. This medication just opened the door for you to be able to apply what your God-given abilities are. And um, and that's really important is that it just is a tool to help you manage um, the demands. Um, it, it just increases that capacity. And then the other thing, you'll hear things about, well, medication would help everybody. And really, when you look at the longitudinal studies, the medications do not create the same therapeutic benefit for people who don't really have ADHD. They might give you an initial bump, kind of like, oh, I can cram for a test or I can kind of, you know, get a lot more done in a few days. But over the course of time, they don't create the performance difference for people who don't truly have ADHD than those who do. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, I've always wondered if someone's on the fence, like, do they have it or not? And whether the, why, why does it, not something that you try medicine and if it helps, then you're like, well, then that was it. Like is, do people ever do that? That does happen sometimes. I mean, really the ultimate confirmation of the diagnosis is does the medication help you? Yeah. And there are students, especially there are students, for example, maybe with autism or students whose um, most of these rating scores use what we call T scores. um, And it's a, and different ones have different, but usually like a clinical level is a 70 or greater. That So when you've got a lot of kids that are in that 60s, some of them the 60s, the clinical level, or clinically significant level. But when you've got, so my middle one, for example, sometimes her scores would hover around the 60s. Mm-hmm. So technically not enough to give her that clinical diagnosis. But if at some point she's just not managing stuff well enough. And we've tried all of the other kinds of strategies we can with time management and planners and routines and, you know, certain types of academic coaching. And that stuff isn't working. At what point do you say, you know what, we need to see if medication just provides enough of that edge to help her get her over that hump and bring those numbers down into a more manageable range. And in that ultimately that's a physician's call there. Um, yeah. you know, the physician has to be comfortable doing that. And just since we're on the topic of medication, if a mom listening, her child's already been diagnosed, they're already on medication. What are your thoughts on taking the child off meds over the summer and on breaks? Cause I think talking about your working memory yeah. scenario, um, so on a break cannot, or a summer. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I cannot give you a one size fits all answer for that, but I can give you some parameters. Okay. So I think you've got to go into your physician and talk to them about height and weight gain. So that's always our first concern with what stimulant medications are. Are we growing enough? Are we gaining enough weight? And what's our sleep like? Because Mm -hmm. those are your potential side effects. So if the physician's like, nope, we're good. I'm happy with the amount of height and weight gain. Then keeping them on it for the summer is an option. One of the things that we ran into in our family um, was, and in, in it's, you know, sometimes the kids don't want the medication because they they like themselves off the medication sometimes because they're more fun. I even had my daughter one time said, my friends like me better when I'm off my medication. I said, sure, you're more fun, aren't you? Because she, that habition, the, the medicine gives her the pause to think about what she's going to say, think about the choice she's about to make. You know, so, you know, it, it's when you don't have habition, it's life's a lot more fun, right? Because you can kind of just go through and not worry about things as much. Um, but but we had to have a conversation about, well, is that for your benefit or is that for their benefit? You know, mm. what kind of friend? I mean, and again, they these weren't mean friends. They just it was a conversation that was helpful for my daughter to recognize you are a little different when you're not on your medication. But let's talk about the pros and cons of that, because she also gets 
more irritable when she's not on her medication. Mm -hmm. She would, her frustration tolerance is lower. So she would get more irritated. But another thing that we had, um, because my daughter's very small and petite, so certainly taking breaks were something that we considered. But because she had a sister that was two years younger than she was and only a year behind her, it became very hard in the management of our daily lives to have a different set of expectations for one child than for the other. Mm -hmm. So when you're giving directions, hey, we need to set the table. We need to put away our laundry. We need to do these things. And I was a Sally I knew didn't have her medication. So we needed to give her five reminders. Right. Or I needed to only give her one step at a time. But then poor Rachel over here, I'm like getting frustrated that I already told you. And so it became a little bit of a double standard that for my young kids made it really hard for them to understand. And we just found it created a lot more conflict in our home if if Sally wasn't on her medication. And then over time, she got to where she she now chooses to stay on her medication on the weekend because and she she knows she wants to take it when she goes to church because she gets more out of the lesson. She likes it when she goes to camp because she's better able to tune into what her friends are saying as well. She's better socially and she's a better friend when she can really dial in with her friends because her medication is giving her that focus that she needs. So for the parents trying to decide, what questions should they ask themselves? Questions okay, about so how first, the family's interacting? Yeah, yeah weight gain um, in, in, with a physician. Have that conversation about the side effects. And then look back it's, you know, and take it, just kind of look back and look for patterns. How is it on the weekends? Is it because the routine's gone on the weekend or is it because we're not medicating? And, and so you just, whenever you're feeling strife, you just kind of have to pause and go, okay, wait. What you have to do your own kind of mapping of the chain of events as the mom to go, how could medication being on or off it be playing a role into fact into the fact that I'm dreading the weekend or I'm dreading the summer or he keeps getting in trouble at, you know, the little camp, like he goes to the zoo camp or he goes to this over here or or sports. A lot of times, especially for the boys, sports become a problem when they're not on their medication because they're not being able to adjust to the coaches and instructions or their processing speed is just off and then kids are getting frustrated. And so it really can play a dynamic there. And I think as a parent, you just have to stop and say, you know, as much as I have mixed feelings about these medications and want to give them a break, is it having some unintended consequences because my child isn't being as successful? Because success isn't only about the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that that's the thing that we have to remember. Well, and I think this is a play, too, with the whole God-centered mom community. We're always talking about, you know, it's not about us, and it's not about us looking good, and um, mm-hmm. but we want our kids to be the best versions, and God's placed them in our hands. And so I think there is a pride of, like, well, I don't want my child to be diagnosed with something. I don't want them to be on medication because I don't want them to be dependent on that. But at the same time, if we want them to do their best and we want to help them be their best, um, mm-hmm. seeking out that right. advice. It's really helpful. Every parent has to really decide. And I will tell you, I have lots of families that choose to take their kids off the, their medication in the summer. And they just know, they said, you know what? We won't be able to do as much. We won't be able to be as involved in as many activities. We need more downtime. We can't be hurrying to get out of the house. You know, we are. And so they just make a choice to say, because we're going to choose this, we're going to structure our life differently that makes that choice a more positive choice for our family. And I think that's just, you have to judge, you know, where are your priorities and what do you want and what works best for your family? And like you said, not filter it through, well, what are all my friends doing? You know, what is the good Christian mom supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Seeking God's advice and but also wisdom is really good. Right. So I have a question about the title ADHD because one of our questions mentions uh, it says helping. I'd love to hear about helping young girls with ADHD, especially the inattentive aspect. So I know back when I went to get my master's, we used to have ADD and ADHD and they changed it. Correct. So it is, it's very frustrating for parents. (laughs) And in, in the lay literature, the literature that's out there for non-professionals is very confusing too, because they tend to continue to use that ADD term because it's just a little bit more practical because as a parent and my own daughter is a great example. When we say she has ADHD, there's this instinctive, and again, it goes back to, we, we, unfortunately we compare ourselves to others still. And as even as mature Christian women, we try to not do that, but it's that I want you to know that my 
ADHD kid isn't the one that's always in your personal space and annoying you to death, right? Mm-hmm. And because that's the stereotype, unfortunately. And um, and so we say, oh, well, she has ADD, meaning that it's not the hyper piece. And so, but the way the clinical diagnosis works is there's three types. There's ADHD inattentive. So that is the old ADD. That means the not the hyper. So in a, it's ADHD primarily and inattentive type. Then there's ADHD primarily hyperactivity. So that's the one with the H, right? That's the stereotypical boy who's up and down, bouncing around in each other's space, blurting out answers, you know, just being too handsy with his buddies. You know, that's the stereotype. And again, that's not all of what ADHD is. And those boys can be amazing boys, too. They I don't want to, you know, they they are passionate and they can we can channel that energy for good and not harm. And then there's the ADHD combination type. And that's the jackpot. You've got both. (laughs) So um, it can be it can be really hard. And the thing that we need to remember, though, is that the behaviors are present in all types. Just some are more internal versus external. And so the impulsivity is characteristic to all of them. Okay. It's just those 80, the ones with the hyper tend to have that body is just on overdrive and their physical body is working against them more um, to just, you know, keep that nervous system not on overdrive and to just be, you know, to just be less energetic. I'll give you an example. My toddler when we would go to the doctor's appointment, she would literally move around the examining table so much that the doctor was like trying to wrestle her pretty much. And she was like, does she move this much all the time? And I said, all the time. Yeah. (laughs) That, that is that constant movement piece. Yeah. Okay. So for that girl with the inattentive aspect, um, some mom said there's so much out there for hyperactive boys that you described. What, uh, what strategies could you give that mom? I think you've mentioned a lot so far, but are there any other ones that you would help? That yeah. Mom? So anything that creates a greater awareness of her own attention. Okay. And dialing in. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about school things and then I'll transfer it over to what I call parallel behaviors at home. Parallel behaviors are behaviors that I tell parents that if you do these behaviors at home, they have a direct correlation to similar behaviors at school. Right. Um, so, for example, an awareness of her focus, so little check-ins. There's studies that actually have shown that if a student has, is reading and their mind is wandering, and if they have a card that says, do I understand what I just read, yes or no, even if they check off no every single time they ask themselves that question, their comprehension still goes up. It doesn't. It might not go up as much as we want it to, but it does go up just because there's a greater awareness of Am I concentrating? Am I focusing? Do I understand what stimuli I just put into my brain? So just asking that question, did I get these instructions? Okay. Did I get these instructions? So um, anything like that, repeat back to me. Um, Giving fingers, say, I'm giving you three things to do. Okay. And we, and then, and then I would say, so I'm giving you three things to do and I want you to picture them in your mind. So I want you to go upstairs and get your shoes, brush your teeth and bring your backpack down. Okay, so we're thinking shoes, teeth, backpack. What are you doing? Shoes, teeth, backpack. Do you see your shoes? Do you see your toothbrush in your head? Do you see your backpack? Okay, and then they go upstairs to go do that. And again, your kid might not be at three steps right now, but anything visual like that, putting little, um, we have one of the things that we did at our home because I printed off little reminder sheets and chore t- sheets and it would never fail that I'd print off like 10 on a clipboard <laughs> and then whenever that 10th one was gone I'd be out of printer ink or paper or something or it would just be busy so I was like I'm done with that I need something that I don't have to change but twice a year so I created and my company actually sells these if you're interested in looking at them they're called we call them chore tags but they're really reminder tags because I one of my weaknesses and lack of spiritual maturity as a parent is I hate reminders <laughs> repeating myself, right? Yeah, yeah. So that is something that really, I lose my sanctification when I have to repeat myself <laughs> and I get irritated. So I needed a way to say, have you checked your tags? Did you do your 
color tags. So we had a morning set and an afternoon set. And where do you keep these tags? Like, what are they? So I had, very good question. So I had them on little hooks, okay? So they're little pictures with words on them of what they're supposed to do. And I had hooks up on, you can do it. We did magnetic hooks on our refrigerator. You can put them up. I have, on my website, I have some different pictures of little, you know, cute ones parents have made and some just functional ones. So they're little hooks that they would keep their tags on. And there was a not done and a done. So not completed and completed. So each kid had four hooks, two morning hooks, two afternoon hooks, not completed, completed, not completed, completed. And they would go through and it was everything from put on sunscreen, brush your teeth, you know, uh, put your lunch in your backpack um, eat, when, once I started training them to do their own breakfasts, did you have a serving of protein? Because if we have attention issues, we need that, those neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters are dependent on protein. So we, I tried to get as much protein in them between breakfast and lunch that I could because their, their medicine's going to work better. And if they're not taking medicine, they're going to just have more of that substance that they need for those neurotransmitters. So they would have those things that they would remind themselves to do. And over time, and you don't start with a whole stack, you just start with three, you know, did you make your bed, you know, did in that way, then they can visualize those things. Now, I always kept them downstairs, because I wasn't going to be running up and down to see if they did them. And that way, I could easily go and look through and like, oh, you put this on complete. But later, when I checked your bed, it wasn't complete. Um, now upstairs, I had one of my daughters, interestingly, the one that isn't diagnosed with ADHD, that she was the one that would have to run up and down, up and down, up and down because she couldn't remember what was on her tags. So I did make a list upstairs of what the tags were just so that she could visually remind herself, but visual reminders and routines. Here's what you need to think about with inattentive ADHD. You want to automatize stuff as much as you can because that frees up brain space. So the more routine they have of putting your keys or putting your school ID in the same spot every day, always having your planner um, in the same spot every day, open to the page. So you're not having, you know, lessen the steps and automatize things so that it's, it's automated and we're not taking up brain space. So when you were first teaching your kids how to brush their teeth, they had to concentrate on each step, right? But now when you and I brush our teeth, we don't, it's just automatic. We don't think about any of it, right? Right. right. And, and especially if we're always keeping our toothbrush and our toothpaste in the same drawer, we can be doing other things with our mental resources while we're doing that task. And so that's what you want to think about for ADHD is automatize things into routines as much as possible so that, that those mental resources can be applied to the new things and the novel things. So smart. And I, you can see how uh, summer... <laughs> <laughs> all falls I'm apart. Yeah. That transition to summer for the kids that love the routine. It's kind of yeah. a beating those first couple of weeks to get a new routine. If our new routine okay. is we get up and we do whatever and we go to the pool and, you know, but then the next week it's different. We're on vacation. Then the next week it's, you know. So here's your friend for summer routines. Cause I'm glad you said that because this is something that I have shared with lots of parents and they're like, oh, I had no idea I could even do that. I mean, it's, it's amazing what we all just, don't, we don't think of until somebody else shows us. Okay, so our lifesaver for summers when my kids were young was we created a mandatory routine regardless of what our plans for the day were. Mm. And here's what it looked like. So I had a calendar that would show them which days were pool days, which how many days away was family vacation or camp or whatever. So we had that for the long-range planning. But our rule was... You And when they were younger, it was 9 o'clock. When they got a little bit older, it was 9.30. Now that I have teenagers and elementary, I haven't decided yet what I'm doing this year. But <laughs> our rule was you had to be ready to walk out the door at 9 o'clock or 9.30 or 10. I don't care what your time is. You had to be ready to walk out the door regardless of what our plans were for the day. So even if today was hang out at our house and do arts and crafts and board games and have friends over to come swim and they're not coming over till 2, I don't care. We had to be ready to go. So what did ready to go mean? That was our morning tags. So if it meant you had to have breakfast eaten, brushed your teeth, your hair, had your bed made, and had our morning reading done, then that was what it was. So typically in the summer, my girls had to read 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. If they wanted to group it all in one, as they got older, I let them do that. Um, they had to do a math drill just because 
with rope, rope memory is something that was hard for my girls. So we just each had a math drill or they had to spend a certain amount of time on a math fact app. And then um, we would sometimes, some of, sometimes they were doing a vocabulary activity. There was just usually three things. So it was reading, a math thing, and then something either, if they were dyslexic, was spelling or vocabulary or something like that. But just something super easy, didn't take a lot of time. It was something that was kind of workbook so that I could manage three different girls. But just something that had required of them something academic just during the weekday. Okay, <laughs> so it, you don't have to do that much. That's maybe too much. For, it's, you know, I'm a teacher, so that's not that difficult for me to think through all that. But the main thing is whatever those routines are, if it's getting dressed and having your shoes on or having your teeth brushed, you know, just have some expectations so that even if you stay home, it's done. And then they get that habit of, you know, they always tell you do the, do the most, the three most important things you should do each day, do it first thing. And then your whole day goes so much better and your stress is reduced. Love that. I think we tried that last summer and it was very helpful. It does require mom to be, you know, consistent and set that expectation and just hold to that. But it becomes the new routine if you start it at the beginning. And even if you fall off a little, at least you started somewhere. Um, right. In some days, so we tried to keep bedtime somewhat normal in the weekdays, especially during the summer, partly because my husband isn't off, right? So yeah. he, he still has to go to bed. And, you still need and, time together, too. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. But but the other thing to remember is if you have a night where, oh, we're going to go watch a fireworks display or whatever, and it's in the middle of the week and our routine. So pre-correcting is also something that's really important is to have that conversation. Hey, guys, tonight is a late night. And and so it, remember what happened last time we all stayed up late? It was really hard for us to do our morning routines. So what are some things we could do to kind of, is there anything we could do ahead of time to plan ahead so we have one less thing to do in the morning? Or or if you want to make the exception to say, hey, you know what, tomorrow instead of 9 o'clock being our deadline, we'll make it 10. You know, And then you're doing that, but it's a very intentional planned expect- exception. I think that makes it but easier and then but it's but you just can't do that too much you know there's a point there's a tipping point at which that becomes counterproductive to the whole goal of the routines in the first place but I think as long as you're letting them see your decision making because again the way that our ADHD kids are going to learn to plan and have foresight is by having it modeled for them and them getting to participate in that process so it takes conversation of Mom, how are you making this decision? What things are you considering? How are we thinking ahead about this? Mm -hmm. Because those are things that don't come naturally to our ADHD kids. And I'm thinking, too, like you said, it's got to be done by 9 or that's our goal to be done by 9. And how so much, uh, so often, ADHD coincides with um, an obstinate defiant disorder um, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. someone in control themselves. And so... There may be some pushback. What would you, mm-hmm. for the mom who's dealing with not only the inattention or the, the executive functioning, but also some behavior of obstinance, what could you? Yes, that's a great. So so every kid that struggles with some of those oppositional behaviors, it can come from a different place. So if it's that they, they're exerting control because they feel so out of control, then giving them choices tends to work really well. Letting them participate in the decision-making process within a parameter. So it's not a free-for-all. How do you want to do this? It's a, hey, we have a choice to make, and we have two or three options. Which way would you like to do it? And then it's within a range, and it gives them a little bit of control without it being a free-for-all. And then holding them accountable to this is what we agreed to. The other big place that is really important for those oppositional kids is after the fact to come back and help them connect the dots and through a conversation. And some kids are willing to let you point it out to them and others, it needs to be more of a you thinking out loud and letting them come to the conclusion. Cause one of mine that's more oppositional than the others, she, if she feels like I'm preaching to her or teaching her, she gets resistant right away. So it tends to work a little bit better. Huh? You know, I really noticed last time we did this, that was really frustrating. But this time, gosh, we all were so much more, we were happier together and we didn't get irritated with each other before we got out the door. That was really good. I really liked how we did that. Thanks for do, thanks for doing it with us. You know, and so it's more of a, I'm making the connections as I'm thinking out loud, but I'm not, it's not so directed at her. Whereas another one, it's a, hey, let's sit down. How 
Do you notice any differences between how that went the first time and how it went this time? What did you think about that? Did you like it better that way? Oh, okay. Was that where you'd like to do it again? You know, so because basically it's letting them step back and see a job well done and recognize the cause and effect chain that got them to that place mm-hmm. is going to create buy-in for next time. The thing with an ODD or um, a kid that has more conduct related things is getting buy-in from them. Mm-hmm. And and that's a critical piece. And I like how you, the positivity in your tone. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. think so often these kids, especially in the years prior to diagnosis, uh, probably there was a lot of strife and frustration directed at them or with them. And so they're on guard, their defenses up, right. whether right. they have ODD or not to be, you know, in trouble or that it's their fault and they may not even be aware that it was their fault. And so mm-hmm. any positivity thrown <laughs> in their direction is going to be more well received yeah. than uh, teaching or a correction um, which is tricky because then we they go into the real world and it's not all there's not all the choices and the you know framing right. up and they're going to have the boss that's not going to be like would you rather do this report or would you rather do this report but you know but, but, there's right. built in get, control yeah yeah and as they get older and they get more mature you're always going to have a teacher somewhere along the way and hopefully not too much that just doesn't get that kid or they're a teacher this it has to be done their way and once they're a little bit older and more mature you're able to say hey you know what I know this is really frustrating and I know that this is t- tedious to have to do it this way. But this is one of those times where you just have to check the teacher's boxes because that's what's going to be the easier means to the end. And and, and, and it's the cost benefit, right? And mm-hmm. so it's helping them weigh what's the cost if you dig your heels in here and what's the benefit if you don't. And let's weigh those out. And you decide, because teaching them how to pick their battles and teaching them to be more flexible and be like a duck with water that rolls right off their back. Those are hard life lessons and, and, and mature. And this is where I think, you know, as you have Christian moms that are listening, it gets really hard as moms to juggle this because these feel like character issues, right? Mm. And to some degree, they are character issues, but we all, it's easy to look at the speck in somebody else's eye and say, oh, you're so you know, you know, rigid or you're so inflexible or you're so self-centered that it has to be your way. There are certain things that we kind of treat as more taboo because of the authoritative style parenting that we have to recognize that these, these are also leadership skills, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and we have to shepherd them in a way that creates a spiritual maturity that works with how they've been wired. Right. Yeah. Um, rather than just, because there are certain strategies that work and certain strategies that just don't, and it's going to be counterproductive. And for the moms that are saying, you know, how do you help their child build confidence? Um, it's what you're saying. It's it's pointing out in them the spiritual giftedness, the, the leadership abilities, the good things that you see in them, and saying any help that we do or these routines or these techniques are to shape and help you be the best version that God created you to be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, Sarah, thank you for your time. I know you've got to go and go help more kids. Um, Do you have a site? this was fun. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to put links to the cards, the tags you mentioned. Um, Yeah. Do you have a site where people can connect with you? I do. So my um, company is called Lake Mirror Publishing. Lake Mirror is L-A-K-E-M-E-R-E, Publishing and Educational Services. And um, we've got some homeschooling products and the tags and more and more we are focusing on products that help support um, specifically ADHD and dyslexia because that tends to be my area of specialty. But um, uh, go and check out there. And then we have workshops too that are very reasonably priced for parents. Um, They typically are about two hours and that's another chance for parents to come and get more specific, just, okay, what would you do about this? And, and so um, we love doing those and it, you know, if a group of moms want to get together and have me come, we usually say it kind of is a minimum of four to five participants and I'll come and do it, you know, at your church. And you're talking at, about in uh, Dallas. You're not talking about in Dallas. You're not, yeah. coming, you're not going to the Philippines. We've got um, listeners no, all over, girl. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. No, I, this is just Dallas. Now we do want to eventually get some webcasts. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be some great. videos up. So keep checking back. I, this is something we've been planning for a while. And to be honest with you, it just gets so busy yeah. trying to juggle everything. But hopefully those Philippine 
families can um, Filipino families can dial in from um, afar, but we're not quite there yet. So well, that'll we'll be great. There. You've got a lot of wisdom and experience, and I really thank you for sharing your own stories um, of what life is like as a mom to kiddos who are, uh, you know, working through some of these scenarios, and it's just helpful because you're not just coming at it from the researcher side or the 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 doctor side, but you know, on the ground, the strife and the struggle and the chaos of our homes, how we can have a more calm home with some of the tips and techniques you shared. So thank you, Sarah, for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Heather. It was a great time. My hope with every episode is that you are not overwhelmed. So that's the goal. Mamas, take a deep breath. We're not going to get this perfectly. We're going to lean on God. He is the one who knows our kids very, very best. But as their mamas, we want to lean in to experts and be wise as servants, uh, innocent as doves. We don't want to let our pride get in the way of getting our kiddos the help they need to be the successful, wonderful men and women that God created them to be. So. If you're having uh, some anxiety or some fear, I just want you to go to God with that and say, hey, God, I'm struggling. I'm a little scared. I'm scared that something might be, quote unquote, wrong with my child. Well, remember, he made that child. He knit that child in either your womb or that child's birth mother's womb. He did not make a mistake. Trust him in it that you will both grow through it. Um... I think we all need each other in these situations. Like she said, you need a safe place. And if you don't have a safe place, maybe it's time to create that safe place. Maybe it's time to uh, be on the lookout for other moms whose kiddos might have the same diagnosis. Create your own GCM podcast club with those moms. Maybe don't talk about ADHD, but still be together so that you have each other. And uh, maybe then some of the issues will come up naturally. If you're looking to start a GCM podcast club, if you're like, Heather, what is that? What are you talking about? Basically, uh, one of the listeners came up with the idea and we have just created some basic six-week curriculum. I, I just list the podcast episode. You listen on your own. And I give you some discussion questions, and you decide when you meet with your group, who's going to be in your group, where, how, with kids, without kids, daytime, evening. It's all up to you, the details. If you're interested, go to godcentermom.com backslash podcast club. On that page, you'll find a place to sign up for the podcast club, and you'll start getting emails from me with more details. I hope y'all were inspired by some of Sarah's ideas for the summer. You mamas that are wrapping up the school year and a little nervous about jumping into summer with your kids and having them home more, uh, I hope her idea of having a routine uh, inspired you and didn't add more work to your plate, but more the idea that you can create some structure even in the summer. I know for me, I kind of like the freedom, but I also know that my boys need a little of the routine. Okay. Y'all, don't mom alone. You have each other. You have mentors. You have God with you everywhere you go. Lean into him. Talk to him throughout your day. He is there to give you the power and the strength that you need to be the mom he created you to be. Have a great day. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the God-Centered Mom podcast. If you're looking for more resources on how to replace me with he, go to godcenteredmom.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guest. I want you to really understand and know that God is just as present while you are washing dishes at your kitchen sink as while you are worshiping Him in a church pew. He sees your service to your family and He is pleased. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Have a great day.